Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with my co-host and the creator of this show, Mr. Tom Jokic. Tom, this is a seriously special edition of Famous Lost Words. Not only is it the last episode of season number five of our show, what? but it also has... Yes, I know. <laughs> Come on, strap yourself in there, buddy. Okay. Uh, and is, is it okay if I just croon a little bit of this magic moment in the background? I be... prefer you didn't. I, I really do think that <laughs> okay. after all these months of, of our shows, yeah. that the only person they want singing is me, even though you're the one who's the actual artist. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can't disagree with that assessment. That's right. So this episode really is a special one because it's looking back at some of our favorite moments from the previous 79 episodes, which is shocking in itself. But we're going to look back at some of our, our, our favorite moments with people like Stevie Nicks, um, all the Georges, including Michael and Harrison. <laughs> We've got Steve Perry just taking a kicking from his bandmates in Journey at the time. Unnamed bandmates, by the way. We should <laughs> That's hasten right. to mention. We've also got an artist that was banned for five years on American television and radio, even though she didn't know about it. And then at the end, we have When Rock Stars Attack, and we're going to end it off with a person that we just lost a few days ago, and that is Helen Reddy, which is weird because you can't think of Helen Reddy attacking anyone when you think of her career and her music, but it's actually a really great little clip, and it's actually quite funny to have Helen Reddy on When Rock Stars Attack, Attack, Attack. It's really funny, but she was kind of goaded into it, so I'm yes. on Helen's side in this one, I gotta say. Okay, so let's get started. Stevie Nicks from 1981 with Tom Petty, Stop Dragging My Heart Around, as we remember some of our favorite moments on Famous Lost Words. Tom, seriously, we've had so many amazing moments on Famous Lost Words that trying to pick the best of them is a daunting task. But let's take this challenge on one memory at a time. Mm -hmm. The first clip, this, this, is, this one is etched in my mind because of the searing and exceptionally unusual honesty of the artist. Mm -hmm. Stevie Nicks lays her life bare for the listener in a phenomenal interview with Marilyn Dennis. She sure does. In a few short minutes, she takes us from potentially fatal self-destruction all the way to self-rescue with plenty of consequences in between. I call them the Coke and Brandy days. Mm. And that was, you know, 1975 to 1985-86. And you started that and cocaine, I, why? Because everybody else was doing it. Yeah. I don't think that Lindsay and I, either of us, would have ever, ever done drugs those kind of drugs if we had not moved to Los Angeles and gotten into a big rock and roll band. Mm -hmm. So I went to Betty Ford. Yeah. That's, that's pretty 30 easy. Day. Go there, 30 days. Yeah. And when I walked out of there, I said, oh, I am never going back to rehab. Mm -hmm. So this is over for me. After I stopped doing coke, everybody was, was worried about me. And of course, and I understood that. And they wanted me to like go and see somebody. If I wasn't going to go to AA, and I'm not an alcoholic, and I knew it, and I wasn't going to go to those meetings if I wasn't an alcoholic. So I said, I'm not doing that. And they said, well, then go see somebody. So I said, all right, just so everybody would leave me alone. Mm. And um, this man said, I think that, you know, to make sure you don't go back to Coke, let's put you on Klonopin. It will, it'll calm your nerves. And, you know, it's like that little bitter, angst-ridden person that I am. Well, he saw that, and he mistook that for depression. Oh. And I wasn't depressed. I was fine. Distressed. I was Distressed. me. Yeah. I was Stevie. I was yeah. me. I was yeah. the girl that, that before 1975. Mm -hmm. 
So what, you know, what was wrong with that? Mm -hmm. And that is what I'm trying to tell people is try to remember sometimes when things don't go right, that's just your personality. That's just you. That's just your little special parts. These doctors, they want to make the whole world a big flat line. And don't even talk about how much money we pay to the drug companies because mm-hmm. the drug companies are making gazillions of dollars putting people on drugs they don't need. So I just I just retired into my house, stayed at home for eight years, basically. And that was tougher than getting that off was cocaine? way tougher. That was wow. 47 days, and I was really ill. So it's like, you know, so when I got done with that, that was kind of my, that was what Tom Petty was telling me. Mm-hmm. You have to get over this, you know. Nobody's mad at you. Everybody understands. The world will forgive you. Yeah. It's okay. So I love this next piece. It's a little slice of Fleetwood Mac history. It's one that we suspected. We might not have heard it so specifically, but boy, she lays it out. It's the two sides of a story told musically. Okay, Stevie Nicks. What is your favorite Stevie Nicks song? Probably my favorite Stevie Nicks song. If I, I mean, it's really, that's a hard question. It's like but I would probably own. say that Dreams is probably my favorite song. Because it's the one that I, I always enjoy doing it on stage, no matter what, you know. It's the song that never gets kicked out of the set. Mm-hmm. And, and when you wrote that song, what was going on at the time? That was, uh, I wrote Dreams, Lindsay wrote Go Your Own Way. That was our two different reactions to the same thing that had happened. You broke up. Yeah. And so his, his was nasty and bitter and, sh- you know, packing up, shacking up's all you want to do, which was totally not true. <laughs> and, you know, and I was like, when the rain washes you clean, you'll know. It was like, you know, so that was the difference in Lindsay's and my songs. I was like, you know, I was trying to be the, have the Indian philosophy about it. And, you know, he was just like Man. downright angry. Yeah, yeah. So, but those were, the, those were the parallel songs. That was Stevie Nicks on Famous Lost Words and our favorite moments. That is an incredible interview from episode 508 as Stevie takes us through huge personal struggles to the soundtrack of some of the most memorable songs of an entire era. I got my mind set on you. I got my mind set on you. From 1987, George Harrison and Got My Mind Set on You. Christopher, this is one of your most famous moments in life. Yeah, it's true. So this is great. So this interview with you and George Harrison from 1988 talks a little bit about his experimentation. The first one we did on was a track, I think, on Rubber Soul called uh, Tomorrow Never Knows. And we all made up little abstract sounds on our home tape machines and then you just cut a piece out of it stick it together uh, into a loop and then put it on the machine and around the playback head and we had to hold it with a pencil you know to keep it tight and we had all these things on different machines and then we'd mix them all in to the record you know all those do you know that song Mm -hmm. oh very well all that stuff you, you started out playing guitar and then obviously branched into playing Indian instruments. Did you, in between, experiment with other kinds of instruments? Well, there was a period in the 60s we all bought Stockhausen records and, and stuff and went, you know, a bit avant-garde, avant-garde a clue. <laughs> but uh, it didn't last long, really. Although some of it's in the uh, Beatle records, like I say, Tomorrow Never Knows and a few things like... Number nine, you know, it had a little wacky sort of avant-garde stuff. Oh, my God, that's a great clip. My favorite line is avant-garde, avant-garde a clue. (laughs) 
<laughs> I know he's just such a like a, a jokester. I know, and isn't it always funny when a really really big artist mentions a song and asks you if you know it? Do you know Tomorrow Never Knows? Of course we know Tomorrow Never Knows, well, right? Did you notice that he attributed it to Rubber Soul? So and he was wrong. And it's about on that. Revolver. That's great, but you know it, they don't think about their discography the way we do. The, the way we do, right? And it's crazy that we know that stuff and they don't. At the time of this interview, the Beatles had recently been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I want to ask you about uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. First of all, what that presentation uh, meant to you. Well, I must say, it didn't mean anything to me until I got there. Because, you know, it's just some idea somebody had, and, you know, it's only been two or three years. And uh, it was fantastic just to see all those people, and little Richard, and... You know, all the guys there. Are you saddened that Paul McCartney wasn't able to appear? Uh, for him, I'm, I'm, uh, it's a pity he missed it because he would have had a good time. You know, and it was nice to see people saying, well, after all that we've done, you know, that's all it was, really. Get the lads here, give them a pat on the back and give them the medal. And it's a shame he missed it because he contributed so much to it. But it didn't spoil our night. We still had fun without him. Would you ever go back and re-record any of those songs? Uh, if I needed someone or a tax man or something like that. I don't know. This, it's easier to write a new one, yeah. really. How did you feel when you heard the McCartney versions of the old songs on uh, Broad Street? I think they were okay. I didn't notice that they were new versions. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I only watched it once. <clears throat> I quite liked it, but I don't, I don't really... I remember dancing, all that one about ballroom dancing and stuff. I don't remember the old ones. He said that he wanted to tackle some of the other old songs, including possibly some of John Lennon's songs, like uh, Beautiful Boy and Imagine. Does that surprise you that he would do that? Paul? Yeah. Maybe because he ran out of good ones of his own. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we've got that on record. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. Okay, so Christopher, that end part where he's where he's <laughs> just being so tough on Paul, that's the video that went viral. 2.4 million people have seen that clip. It's so interesting because as a Beatles fan, you're so excited that a Beatle, one Beatle is talking about another Beatle, you know, many years after the fact, and yet yeah. he just kind of lays him out with, uh, with that comment about Paul not having any new songs left. And perhaps needless to say, it was a truly unexpected moment. Um, I mean, in interviews, I mean, you're obviously you hope for unexpected moments, but it's so, so rare that you get anything that isn't, you know, a topic that the artist has touched on one way or another. But he, he had his say, and he just, it was the classic Beatles wit that killed me. Well, that's true, isn't it? You know, so... Absolutely, and it's so funny, and the re the look on your face, the reaction on your face is so good as well. That's <laughs> yeah. great. So, if you want to hear more of that interview, it's episode 204 on Famous Lost Words. Still to come on this special episode of Famous Lost Words, more of our favorite moments. Oh yeah, including Christopher's amazing Robert Plant story. You're going to want to hear this. Famous Lost Words is brought to you by The Case for Wine. So let's say you're a wine lover in Southern Ontario, and let's say you want a selection of wine that has everything, very affordable wines, and also very exclusive premium wines that you just can't find anywhere else. 
That's right, Christopher. The Case for Wine features the world's greatest wines from Italy, Australia, California, Niagara, Chile, France, just a click away. And here's the best part. They deliver right to your door. Why line up outside the liquor store when you can order from the comfort of your own home? Order by the case, all 12 of the same wine or a beautifully curated mixed collection. Christopher, my first order from the Case for Wine was a wonderful mix. And it also included the most beautiful bottle of red wine I've ever seen. It's called Apassimento Rosso Puglia, and it actually looks like it's gift wrap, but that's just the label. It's a spectacular red that also makes the perfect gift, even if the person receiving that gift is yourself. As in your case, yes. <laughs> to order your case, here's the email address. It's rick at thecaseforwine.com. That's the case for wine. Quality, artisanal wine. That email address again, rick at thecaseforwine.com. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, and we are looking back on some of our favorite moments from the show from now 80 episodes. So now, Christopher, we are going to replay my absolute favorite story of yours. Okay, Ah. so you're talking about, we're doing a, a segment with Robert Plant, and the very, very, very first clip we hear, actually, it's the only clip we hear from him, is where he's talking about Stairway to Heaven. And then you go <laughs> into your Robert Plant story, and it's just so great. I'm not even going to have you retell it. I'm actually just going to roll it, okay? Okay. So here it is from episode 107, Robert Plant talking about the songs that he's going to be playing on his upcoming solo tour. I don't know. I'll have to wait and see what you fancy doing. But it won't be that long, boring bugger. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. That that long, boring bugger? He just called Stairway to Heaven (laughs) that long, boring bugger. Okay, what a cranky old bugger he is. Uh, He's he's a funny, (laughs) funny guy. I have a plant story for you. When uh, Alana was on tour with Robert as his opening act, they were uh, a couple for a while, shall we say. Yes, yes. And... um, he was he was We're talking really, about Land Miles here for anybody who's new to the game here. Okay, he go. was really fun to hang out with because I was on a lot of that tour, and he'd have dinner with the crew members and everything. Very very loose, easygoing guy. Anyway, he invited me and a few of my friends to join he and Alana at Spago Restaurant, which at the time was that was Wolfgang Puck's sort of first restaurant. You know, he's the celebrity chef, mm-hmm. and it was a very prestigious place to go. Mm-hmm. So we go, and it's kind of like. If you could imagine having dinner with Henry VIII, it's like he's carrying, <laughs> yeah, more wine for all my friends in the, in the court. You know, it's like that yes. kind of having dinner with him. And I was sitting right beside him, and it was it was hilarious. I mean, he just he knows how to carry the moment. Okay, yeah. So at one point, um, Wolfgang Puck, who's trying desperately to curry favor, brings out a pizza because that was what he served in the shape of a double-necked guitar. <laughs> I know, which I loved. Anyway, the dinner goes on and on, and so then he and Alana are sort of swanning around the room saying yes. hi to various people and stuff, and so I'm there, and among my friends is Mike Myers. He's at the dinner as well. Wow. And every time Plant says something outrageous, he and I look at each other and pretend to be taking notes right <laughs> during the whole dinner. I think Mike might have used those notes later on in the Austin Powers <laughs> stuff, but I mean, so anyway, finally at the end of the night, you know, they're busy doing their thing and, and I'm thinking, this is one of the weirdest nights I've ever experienced and we go out to the valet parking 
and who's there but Don Rickles and his wife. <laughs> and he's saying to her, he's like, you are Hey, honey, do you know who that was in there? That was Led Zeppelin. Yeah, the guy with the broad and the hair. Yeah, we were, hey, we were having dinner with Led Zeppelin. You know who that guy is, don't you, honey? It's like, I'm thinking, I, this didn't really happen. I'm just oh, making this God. up as it goes along. It, yes. So, and one more, just little button on the story. Yeah. He stuck me with the bill. No way. He did. He did. There you go. I just love that whole story <laughs> and the whole thing. Christopher, that was just fantastic. One of my very favorite moments on Famous Lost Words. And Robert Plant and Mike Myers and Christopher Ward and Alana Miles at Wolfgang Pucks. That's fantastic. <laughs> it's a good one. That's Freedom 90 from 1990. George Michael on Famous Lost Words, one of my favorites. So cool, so bemused, and so open about an experience that might have derailed many a career. George Michael, in this brief but very revealing clip from a much longer interview, talks about the second coming out and how it affected him. Check out episode 404 for the many great moments from this interview, one of our true favorites on Famous Lost Words. Well, I think it's just been beneficial to my life, really. I mean, I think um, I think uh, there are two... I mean, for, for, a, for a, a gay celebrity, there are two outings, really. There's the outing to the people you know and love, um, and then there's the outing to the public, which are quite often very different experiences. And in my case, you know... Uh, they're not quite, they're not not normally quite as humorous as as uh, as mine was, but I think that that uh, freedom in general, the more freedom you can experience in life, the 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 better your art is going to be if that's what you you need. You know, if, if you're a creative person, and I think uh, I suppose I'm just much much more relaxed about being honest, and I don't. Th- I think actually mystery kind of worked for me when uh, I was really down in the dumps and down on my luck in in personal terms. But now I don't really see any purpose for it, and uh, I just want people to understand the the words I'm singing, really. Such a great clip, and he sounds so great and optimistic in that interview from 2004. But it also was his final studio album. Nevertheless, I highly recommend that episode, 404, as we look back on some of our favorite moments on Famous Lost Words. From 2001, that's Pink and Get the Party Started. Famous Lost Words' Favorite Moments is a collection of our funniest, most insightful, fascinating interview clips all rolled up into one show. Tom, thank you for zeroing in on these unforgettable segments from our previous 79 episodes. Now, from the wacky file, here's the incredibly talented Pink telling anyone who's thinking of dating her that she's not what they assume her to be. Oh, they expect her to be super wild, total rock star diva, you know, don't wait in any lines, do you know who I am, throwing money around, bitter, angry, man-hater. Then they figure out that I'm a total down-to-earth puppy dog that just wants free drinks and love. That's great. That's Pink from episode 203. A great interview. Check that out. I think she's one of the artists from this era that stands out in a great way. A very good singer, a wonderful champion for women and girls, and an extraordinary performer. Yes to all of the above. She's fantastic. Okay, so let's keep going with some of our faves from the Famous Lost Words archives. 
Tom, in a matter-of-fact manner, Buffy St. Marie describes in this clip how her career was held underwater for five minutes and as a result was dead, as she says, for a very long time. And the, the thing is, she tells this story with an almost whimsical tone. But let's face it, the frustrating events that she's talking about had a long and damaging effect on her life and career. These are extraordinary words from an exceptionally gifted artist on Famous Lost Words' favorite moments. Well, you found yourself being blacklisted by the United States government at one point, did you not? Like not being able to get any work? Well, I didn't know it at the time. I found out like 10 years after the fact that that's essentially what had happened to me. Was it the Johnson term in office? Uh, Yeah. Lyndon Johnson? Yeah. Lyndon Johnson and Mrs. Lyndon Johnson apparently didn't like the idea of of people um, speaking out strongly on very much of anything. Mm. Eartha Kitt also was, she was also very heavily blacklisted, you know, no more airplay. I went from a point of, um, I I just thought that people had lost interest in me. I mean, I I would go on The Tonight Show and be asked to say nothing about Native people, to uh, not sing Universal Soldier, or now Mm -hmm. the buffalo's gone for heaven's sakes, or, or I wouldn't be invited. Too controversial. Well, that's what it was said, you know, and I just went for it. I said, okay, people are not feeling controversial in these days. People are sick of that. So I went to Europe. I went to Asia. You know, I was having concerts in Paris and Hong Kong and all over the place and having a wonderful time. Ten years later, I came back, and, you know, I had had a very, very nice time outside of the U.S. and continued to do U.S. concerts on reservations and benefits, and I really was quite blind to the fact that anything overt had been done to my professional life. And you found that out somehow. Well, broadcasters came forward and apologized for the fact that it had been done. They had letters Mm. from the White House. Wow. Yeah, I know. I was shocked. Land of the free, home of the brave. Well, Mm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, administrations come and go. And and it didn't last for a very long time. But as you know, in the record business, you know, it's like like drowning a person. You you only have to hold them underwater for about five minutes and they're dead for a very long time. (laughs) In the record business, losing um, that kind of momentum. You know, other other artists come along and, um, you know, if people just don't hear from you, they, you know, go on to something else. That's Buffy St. Marie speaking to Larry Wilson in the late 80s. And that moment is from episode 505. That particular interview, that particular clip is so endearing and so great. And it says so much. Lots more with her, like I said, in episode 505 of Famous Lost Words. More of our favorite moments coming up on this special edition of Famous Lost Words. Including a very famous lead singer who gets vilified by his own bandmates when he releases a solo album. And he is really hurt by that. Plus... We get personal with Alanis Morissette. From 1984, that's Steve Perry and O'Sherry. Tom, you know Steve Perry uh, of Journey, uh, and I know this is a band that you're a fan of, thinks of himself (laughs) as, as, as a team player in the band. Team player, as, as, as he may have been, Steve found himself on the bench, so to speak, when he released his Street Talk album and had to field some nastiness from within his own team. Let's face it, bands are like siblings, but it still hurts, as Steve reveals in this clip. Steve, one of your guys in Journey um, described your LP in two words. I don't mean to be difficult, but it's been written somewhere that uh, somebody in your band, unnamed, said, It sucks. I don't happen to agree, and I'm sure you don't. Well, um, 
Well, I get, it got turned around to It Sucks, but I, I don't know exactly what the words were anymore. I, I, I really didn't want to mention who it was. Uh, it just, it's, you know, it's a little annoying when everybody else does their projects, and it was, um, I was very glad for everybody to do their projects. Um, there was a couple done by uh, uh, Steve Smith, a couple done by Neil, and Jonathan's been doing his projects with his wife. And really? So you should get the same amount of respect, right? Well, I mean, I hadn't, I hadn't done any ever. I, I thought I'd be the last one to go out and do something. I thought because I was a very team player, mm-hmm. and when I decided to do one, um, I did, at least I didn't think I would get bad reviews. At least it's a little bit better than that. But that's okay. I mean, from the guys' reviews, you know. Right from within your own group. I, I don't mind. I'm, that's all right. Oh, that's Steve Perry from episode 106 with the late Larry Wilson asking the tough question, and it clearly hurt Steve Perry talking about it. There's also a moment from my interview with Steve 10 years later where he's still dealing with the guys in Journey, and while he has a bit more confidence, the bad feelings are still there just below the surface. Check that interview out on episode 507. Tom, what is your opinion? Should interviewers ask those confrontational questions knowing that they are going to make the interview subject uncomfortable? Well, you know, when I hear some of these uh, interviews from the 80s and, and from the late 70s sometimes, I know I actually know the guys that are asking the questions and I'm sometimes shocked by how much nerve they have to ask those questions <laughs> right off the bat because that was the very first question that Larry Wilson asked Steve. But you know, that is a it's a memorable moment and Steve acquits himself really well. He does. And you'll hear the longer version of that particular interview in episode 507 like I said before, but in it you'll talk about how important it was for Steve to actually do a solo album and it was good for his mental health and everything. And yeah. I'm not sure Steve would have been so passionate about his answer had Larry not started the interview with that, but boy that is a tough way to start. And you and I have talked about that. Mm-hmm. You can't tick off the artist right away, or, or they just might bolt for the door, right? <laughs> yes, and I wouldn't blame them. Okay, let's keep going now with some of our favorite moments on Famous Lost Words. That's Alanis Morissette from Jagged Little Pill and Hand in My Pocket. I know, Christopher, that's one of your favorite songs of hers. That's an incredible album, needless to say. Yeah. I mean, just a landmark yeah. recording. Um, and that is a great track, Hand in My Pocket. Um, Tom, we featured some great interviews that you've done over the years, but I think, personal opinion, your interview with Alanis is my absolute favorite. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, you, there's, I don't know, you did this thing, you established a kind of an easy rapport very quickly. And for my money, that's the interviewer's most sought after commodity. Now, I'm not going to spoil it for anyone who hasn't heard this interview, which is from episode 317, um, but among the many favorite moments, it's Tom's question, how was it, that makes me laugh the most. I think it makes her laugh the most, too. Anyway, let's have a listen to that. I'm going to ask you rapid-fire questions. Answer them quickly, if you want. Yeah. Favorite movie? Uh, Rushmore. (laughs) I love that movie. That's (laughs) good. Favorite current album? Uh, Rufus Wainwright, Poses. The one thing you can't travel without? My pillow. (laughs) You carry around a certain pillow? Yeah, (laughs) Tempur-Pedic. Your first kiss? Uh, Eighth grade. I'm not going to say his name because he'll be horrified. Eighth grade. uh, Eighth grade. (laughs) How was it? 
<laughs> it was uh it wasn't my favorite kiss but uh but hey, I didn't have that much relativity, so I thought, wow, if this is what kissing's going to be for the rest of my life, I don't know how interested I am. Isn't that horrible to say? I'm not saying his name, though, so, <laughs> so it's okay. My first kiss, our, our teeth clanged against each other, oh. and it was just, it wasn't like, a, we didn't know what we were doing. It was so very awkward. Funny yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then she made some comments, and it wasn't good. Ah! Um, uh, your worst date. Oh, man, I've had a, <laughs> I've had a few. <laughs> my worst date. My worst date was um, not that long ago, actually. And, um, Is it with I didn't, the guy you're currently with? No. Um, but I just didn't get a word in, and the, it wasn't a back-and-forth thing. Uh, it wasn't a conversation. It wasn't a mutual curiosity. It was someone just talking at me the whole time, and there is no quicker way to, to turn me off than to do that. Oh, Christopher, like I've said before, if there were any artists that I thought I could be friends with them, it was Alanis. And it's like meeting someone for the first time and immediately realizing that they are a great person. But it's also like meeting someone who has a considerable gift for making people feel like that. Yeah, that is so true. And you know that there are hundreds, if not thousands of people who believe that they have made that same unique connection. Nevertheless, she's perhaps my favorite. Good work. From 1978, the Bee Gees and Stayin' Alive. Tom, the brilliant Marilyn Dennis is at it again in this hilarious clip with the Gibb brothers as she leads the chaotic group from one laugh to the next. Giddiness is a hard thing to corral, never mind maintain in an interview, but that's how this clip with the Bee Gees unfolds. Out of the three of you, who is the weirdest sense of humor? Robin. Uh, me, yes. Why, why just think Robin? Because it's very bizarre. Yes. Uh, he, bizarre he, has a, he has a way of perceiving things or seeing things that are actually hysterical to Morris and me because yeah. we, all, we all share so many different memories yeah. that actually things that Robin may say, other people may have no idea what he's talking about, but Morris and me do. Yes. And it might be from 25 years ago or from yeah. 30 years ago. But we also share a, yeah. common, a common base, the goons' sense of humor, which is Peter Sellers, Spike Milligan and Harry Seacombe. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which British used to be on the BBC World BBC? Service, oh, so right. it was heard in Canada as well. So we, yeah. we share a lot of that humor. Yeah. Yeah. Who's the most serious? Oh, oh boy! Wendy, who would say the most serious? Probably, um, uh, 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 it's a toss-up between Robin and me. I think yeah. Morris is good. Morris used to be more serious. Oh, than thank me. you. But now he couldn't care less. Morris, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, life's too short. You know what I mean? Morris is probably more passive than <laughs> than. Uh, than yes, I've Barry. been known yeah. to be called yeah. passive. Well, more like yeah. the craze, really. Yes. yes. Now and again, we'll beat Morris up. So yeah. occasionally, like the craze. I like to live on the Robin, edge. Robin, are you older than Morris? One hour. Yeah, I so know, do you I ever hold that against him when you know no, when there's so a problem? I hold a lot of things against him occasionally. <laughs> well, actually, I sent him out first to check it out because I wasn't sure I wanted to be bothered coming out. You know, uh, so that's yeah. the reason why. Do you I regret like... coming out? <laughs> no, actually. Well, no, Robin said it's a jungle out here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Morris likes to live on the edge, sometimes <laughs> yeah. a building. Who has the most female fans? Oh, well, that would be me, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. Hey, I want to yeah. say this, that I looked at some websites. Yeah. Yeah. Steady on. You have a lot of websites, Morris. Yes, yeah, see? She's looking at me, folks. I, I tell you, I think, I think, I think hey. he for himself. <laughs> I think it's the rumors. You said it and you heard it first here. What's the one thing about each of you that most irritates your wives? Oh, God. Oh, I think just coming home. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <my. laughs> 
That really was a career highlight for both Marilyn Dennis and myself, Christopher, as we flew down to Miami to chat with Barry, Morris, and Robin in what would be one of the final interviews they did before uh, Morris's sudden passing a year later. I was there in the room where it happened, and I laughed so much, but I was also worried, i got to be honest, that the show sounded too chaotic to listen to and appreciate But then I listened to it back when I got home, even though it was a live special, like live 90 minutes on the air. So all of the mistakes are there, but it's so much fun. And you can hear the best parts of that on episode 503, as we remember some of our favorite moments on Famous Lost Words. That's Pink Floyd and Comfortably Numb from one of the biggest selling albums of the 70s from 1979. That's The Wall. Tom, Canadian star producer Bob Ezrin is known for his work with Kiss, Alice Cooper, Peter Gabriel, and so many others. But he might have faced his most daunting task when he was asked to work with Pink Floyd on what he referred to as a monumental undertaking. In this fascinating clip from the time of The Wall, Ezra tells us why he got the gig as Pink Floyd's first official producer. And along the way, he provides an intriguing portrait of band leader Roger Waters and his creative process. Bob Ezra, with the exception of perhaps Alan Parsons, as he has told us in another interview, where he gave a lot of creative ideas to the Money album by Floyd, The Register, and so on, although he's accredited as being engineer. In fact... Floyd have never used a quote-unquote producer until now. A, why a producer? And B, quite frankly, why Bob Ezrin? First of all, um, well, in fact, Parsons was an engineer, and and, uh, I don't know about the creative input. The way the group tells it, he didn't have a great deal to do with it. But um, I never get in the middle of these things, you know. The reason why I produced her this time is because this is a double album, because the stage show was tied in, because it's a monumental undertaking for any one individual, because Roger, for the first time, was writing almost all the material and was, frankly, a little insecure about whether he was able to handle all that he'd bitten off. The writing alone of this thing took months to do, because uh, Roger is not um, the world's most versatile musician, mm-hmm. and... Uh, and as a composer, he is primarily lyric-oriented, and he uh, suits he adapts the music to suit the lyric. And things were coming out very much the same. In fact, there was basically one melody going on for 90 minutes, and it was just not going to do. So uh, we, we had to rewrite everything. And uh, although, this may sound like an Alan Parsons story, too, but although, <laughs> although the credits read that uh, Gilmore and I really only were involved with three songs, in fact... Those are three that we actually brought in without them being adaptations of, a, of an idea of Rogers or, or but they reworks. But the, these were things that we brought in clean and clear. Mm-hmm. Roger made it quite clear from the beginning. It was his project. Anybody could write on it that wanted to, but they weren't going to get any money for it, and they weren't going to get credits. You know, <laughs> that, was, that was it. This is, you know. Quite a man, Roger Waters. Oh, yes, he is. He really is. He's yeah. one of the most imposing people I've ever worked with. Oh, wow. There are so many ways to create a masterpiece. Roger Waters needed a collaborator. He didn't want David Gilmore, so he brings in Bob Ezrin. And yet, it's Roger's vision, and he wants most of the control and pretty much all of the money. Also, (laughs) we have to remember, like you said in the introduction, Christopher, that this interview is from 1979, just when that album is being released. So Bob really doesn't know that The Wall will live on as a classic almost as 
famous in the minds of fans as Dark Side of the Moon. Not quite, but almost, and it really is a classic album from that era. That's Gloria Gaynor and I Will Survive from 1978. Okay, so Christopher, this is one of my favorite moments from the show. And what happens, of course, is that we normally just play the old clips and then we just talk about it a little bit. But one of the best parts of doing this show is we've actually started having artists call us Artists from the past call us, and then we play the old clips for them, and then they react to it, and then they talk about, you know, kind of what they're up to these days. But this was a real joy for me. So what I did is I had Gloria Gaynor on the phone, and I played her this clip from 1978, from when the song came out. And I played it for her and then asked her how she felt about it, okay? So here it is. Well, it was written to, to for anyone who has been sort of downtrodden and has uh, lost touch with his own self-determination and self-reliance. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it calls on your, your self-determination and reliance, and it's antidepressant, and that's what it's meant to be, not just for women, but for anyone. So, what do you think when you hear that person, first of all? I think that she sounds like a little kid. <laughs> <laughs> and what... What she said is absolutely true. That song has meant so much to you. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, it has meant so much to me because it's meant so much to so many people. It has become um, the core of my my purpose, and it's it's just a wonderful thing to have for for people to come up to you everywhere I go uh, and tell me how this song has uplifted and empowered and uh, encourage them to make it through the difficult times of their lives. For sure. And you fought really hard for that song to be released as a single, didn't you? Yes, I did, because it was originally, uh, as you know, the, the, the B-side. And the record company, the president of the record company, had chosen another song for me to record for the A-side. No one wanted to go against his decision, and so they wouldn't even listen to our work if I, when we told them about it. Isn't that great? So Gloria Gaynor, she's so charming. She's so lovely. And she's of course, she that. reacts so much, you know, like, oh my God, that, that kid sounds like a little girl. And now, of course, <laughs> 40 years later, she can still relate to that person that she heard, but she still can't believe it's her. And her comments about I Will Survive, of course, are so great. That's Gloria Gaynor and one of our favorite moments on Famous Lost Words. Biggest hit, Carly Simon and You're So Vain on Famous Lost Words. You know, Christopher, you know what you and I have in common? What's that? We are probably the only two people in the universe who are not suspected <laughs> of being the subject of one or two of the verses in that song. So many people have been listed as the possibility for uh, who she's singing about in that song. 
Well, that's because neither one of us are guilty of vanity. That's otherwise we'd be right in there. <laughs> Hang on, I have to this, check myself this, in the mirror. This interview was from 1976, around the time of Simon's seventh album called "Another Passenger," an album which got mm, a tepid commercial reception, but which Rolling Stone called Carly Simon's best record. Mm-hmm. Here she talks about. Are you ready for it? Mm-hmm. Taking fans for lunch. I remember last summer, I was, at, I was in a very low kind of mood that I'd been in for about two or three weeks, just about my music and, and, and about myself. And I was walking down the street where, where I live and on uh, the Cape, and, and a bunch of girls had followed me and had stopped me and, and said, uh, you know, how much they liked me and so forth. And I just, I was so happy that I took them all out to to eat in this little place and we just talked for about I mean I was just so thrilled really? that they had actually yes and and I wanted to I wanted to find out about them I always think it's so one-sided when somebody tells me that they like me or whatever and mm-hmm. and I you know figured that if they're at all interesting and you know how you can tell in a second whether you want to get to know somebody sure. or not but if they're at all interesting and I'm turned on by them in any way I want to find out what they do too We have lots more still to come on this special episode of Famous Lost Words. Up next, When Rock Stars Attack. In this, our 80th episode of Famous Lost Words, we're looking back at some of our favorite moments. And one of our favorite regular features is called When Rock Stars Attack. And boy, we have compiled some amazing ones here. Now, it's always funny when rock stars obliquely criticize other artists and say, well, we won't name any names. And then a few seconds later, they're throwing Neil Young under the bus. But you know what? That's what happens when rock stars attack. We begin with Sir Elton John. A lot of people who have been in successful positions, I mean, I'm not naming names, but some people put out the same albums five times in a row. And and, uh, if you notice, I could, uh, as I say, name names, but I'm not going to because I'm quite a generous person. But you see, the albums start off at number one, and the next one gets to eight, the next one gets to 15, because it's the same backtrack, the same song all over again. And uh, I don't think, you you know, people just get a bit fed up with that. And that's a shame, because Neil Young used to make really great albums, and now it's, um, you know, it's, it's a shame. (laughs) <laughs> okay, that's Elton John taking the high road until he takes a fork in that road and it gets ugly. That's when rock stars attack. Okay, time now to get to one of my favorites. Yes, that's Kiss from 1975 and Rock and Roll All Night. Okay, nothing sets Christopher off more than my inexplicable love of the band Kiss. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But meeting Paul Stanley in person in 1999 to chat with him was a complete thrill. And that full interview is in episode 308. Here's just one part. And since Kiss was by no means a critical darling, quite the opposite, it's no surprise that Paul had nothing nice to say about the critics. The media is so unimportant. The only person who finds the media, particularly critics, important are the critics. I've made a career of never being approved by the media. You know, once again, I think that the the vehemence or the the extent of people's dislike of what I do or the, the fact that they want to never see the good in it, you know, that's really their problem. You know, um, there's too many people in the world who are my friends to spend too much time worrying about the people who who aren't. Bottom line is most of, in music, 
if you read a critic's top 10 albums, most of them are albums nobody's ever heard because they're more bent on telling everybody that they know what's really good. Mm -hmm. And nobody's really interested. That's Paul Stanley of Kiss from episode 308, pulling no punches when it comes to critics. Okay, so this next one kind of came out of nowhere. It was during our Best Canadian Songs of All Time, episode 501. It's Miles Goodwin of April Wine taking on the entire city of Toronto. And even though I've lived in Toronto for many, many years now, this genuinely made me laugh. Have a listen. Toronto, there's a love-hate relationship with Toronto and April Wine. I mean, I know that. It's always been there, you know, from the early days when we played the high schools and the clubs. And Why is that? I don't know why. I don't know why. We've See, we've never really if indeed it's wined true. and dined the people of Toronto, and I think that's a big part of it. Um, and people uh, hold things against us, which is, doesn't make any difference because uh, every album sells, and we did 12,000 here, and life goes on. Right. It bothers me. I can't say it doesn't bother me. Uh, I, I, I honestly can take criticism i can take criticism you know Mm -hmm. but i can't take malicious shots which toronto gives to everybody when can we expect to see miles goodwin and april wine back in toronto we're never we're never going to play here again never never unless maybe this summer (laughs) 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 if they want us no i think that (laughs) if the album does well you know we love to play canada even after 10 years Mm -hmm. we still love it That is so great. We'll never play in Toronto again unless we come back this summer. (laughs) That's so weird because there's such bitterness in what he's saying. And then he goes, yeah, we might come back. I never want to see you again until all is forgiven. (laughs) Okay. And this, I love this clip so much. I sent it to you. I emailed it to you the other day. And this is circa 1983-82. Stuart Copeland is the drummer for the police one of the most influential people on me in terms of a drummer. I'm a terrible drummer. And actually, once I heard Stuart Copeland drum, I said, okay, well, I can't do that, so I quit. Um, <laughs> thankfully, I'm back at it. And, you know, I only drop the beat maybe once per song. So I'm, that's a real improvement for me. But uh, he was a huge influence, and I loved his drumming so much. Mm-hmm. And so he's in The Police, maybe my favorite group of the early 80s. They release five albums, and... It's a contentious relationship between the members of the group. Yeah. So someone asks Stuart to, to talk about Sting writing pop songs. And this is what Stuart had to say. The best way to get Sting foaming at the mouth is to call his music pop music. I'll remember that. Well, uh, but you just, as you just said, it is important for him to have hit songs. And so it's a, it's the perfect one. It works every time. He needs that acceptance. To know um, that his songs are. Light. He doesn't need acceptance from anybody. He has enough faith in his material, and with talent like that, it's hardly surprising. Um, he, he, if he, if his songs weren't hit songs, he would just think it's because the world is crazy. Um, anybody who doesn't like his music has got a problem. Uh, <laughs> and that's that's you know, when you've got talent like that, I suppose you can have that kind of arrogance too. Okay. So, <laughs> Stewart is still in the police when he says all this. Yeah. Like, that is nuts. When you call your lead singer the creative force behind your band, m- maybe the most arrogant guy in pop music. Oh, I just <laughs> love that clip. It's so, it's just, I get tingles when I feel, when I hear people fighting like that. Even though I'm, I'm definitely an avoider when it comes to confrontation like that. Mm-hmm. But that, that clip made me laugh. Well, he probably thought, well, what are you going to do, fire me? 
So let's keep going with When Rock Stars Attack. This is funny because it's Leo Sayer. And this comment <laughs> that he makes did not exactly work out the way he had planned. Okay, Leo Sayer, fairly big in the UK, but only really had three hits here. And Leo had a pretty high opinion of himself when this clip was recorded, especially in the way he compared himself very favorably to Elton John. But I would think that I stand a lot better chance than Elton of going further than Elton because I don't think I will let the Hollywood sort of showbiz sort of tinsel thing take me over in the way that it's taken him over. And I feel the naturalness has gone from his music. Oh, ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Leo when where are they now's attack? <laughs> I am strong. From May of 1972, that's the late Helen Reddy. And it's so odd that we would choose her on When Rock Stars Attack. But go ahead, Christopher, let's set this up. <laughs> yeah, it's odd, but I think you'll understand. There is an explanation. Mm-hmm. Helen Reddy was, was called the queen of 70s pop and actually broke initially in Canada with the song I Don't Know How to Love Him, which comes, in case you've forgotten, from the musical Jesus Christ Superstar. Now, she eventually went on to have 15 top 40 hits, including three Billboard number ones, Delta Dawn, Angie Baby, and of course, the song that she will always be associated with, the feminist anthem, I Am Woman, which, by the way, she co-wrote. Now, Reddy was an articulate and very experienced artist, so when an interviewer chose to ask her opinion of punk rock for some reason, Helen was ready. What do I think of punk rock? very interesting. I was rereading uh, Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire again recently, and he gives five reasons why the empire fell. One of them, one of the reasons when he talks about the arts, he says uh, that they degenerated, and uh, that freakishness, which was masquerading as originality, became the popular mode. And I think we're reaching a similar level with punk rock. I prefer punk punk MOR, which I feel is my sound. Oh, wow. That is so good. Helen yeah. Reddy on When Rock Stars Attack, mm-hmm. talking about how she feels about punk rock. And she wants, she really likes, instead of punk rock, she likes punk MOR. That's fantastic. <laughs> what a great way to end the show. That does it for this season of Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward. And I'm Tom Jokic. Our show was produced by the incredible Adam Karsh, who has done such a great job as producer and sounding board for our show, and he is the most patient man alive. By the way, Adam is also involved as a producer in another show called The Sound Podcast, which is dedicated to good Lord jam bands like the Grateful (laughs) Dead, Fish... (laughs) and many others, but he's so proud of it, so I definitely wanted to give that a shout-out. So please check that out. Also, you can hear Adam's voice because he's a regular on the Jan Arden podcast, and every once in a while, Adam's there just kind of uh, giving his own thoughts, and it's fantastic. He sounds great. Love you, Adam. Thanks for everything you've done for the show so far. Uh, Second that emotion, sir. The executive producer of Famous Lost Words is Rob Farina. It's a special shout-out to the Orange Lounge in Toronto and to engineer Spencer Sunshine. The theme music for Famous Lost Words is by Rob Wells and Christopher Ward. I also want to thank an old chum of mine and a mentor of sorts. His name is Doug Thompson. Doug shared a number of interviews from the archives, including Roger Ashby's interview with Mick Jagger from 1986 Mm. in Barbados. That was something I knew about, but I didn't 
actually have in the in the archives, and Doug sent it to me. Also, special thanks to Lisa Grassi and Jeff Kirkwood for their assistance with the archives. Also, Tom, special thanks to Rob Basile and Heather Edwards from Orbit Media for getting this show heard on radio stations in Canada, as well as Mike Ben Dixon at News Talk 1010 in Toronto for being the very first to run our show. There are 79 previous episodes of Famous Lost Words, if you can believe it. So get caught up with them on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please, rate and review us and tell all your friends. That really helps a lot. And don't forget to follow us on social media on Twitter at Famous Lost Pod, on Facebook and Instagram at Famous Lost Words. Season 6, coming soon. 